well, a little earlier, we had a, a brief overview of those final three chapters in the book of Judges. And I think you saw there, they don't make for cosy bedtime reading. The events that unfold in those chapters are vile and they are horrific. And these are details, nevertheless, which God sees fit not to withhold from us in his word. He wants to ensure that we are left in no doubt as to just how deep even God's people can sink. That happens when they cast off all restraint. As we saw last week in that verse from Proverbs chapter 29. Now we understand why it was that God's anger burned so hot against Israel with these kinds of things going on in the land amongst his chosen people. We understand why it was that through this period of the judges, over 300 years, remember, they spent so many years under the tyranny of foreign nations. The challenge for us is not to fall into the trap of thinking that we could not possibly ever be so careless and so sinful. By God's grace, we won't ever be. But there really is no room for complacency in our hearts, is there? I want to bring three final thoughts to you as this series draws to its conclusion. Here's the first. Spiritual decline always leads to moral decline. Last week we had placed before us the spiritual reality in Israel as the tabernacle lay largely abandoned in Shiloh while the people are inventing their own gods and their own style of worship in their homemade shrines as seems good to them. And if you turn your back on God and his word, if you abandon his lordship and his truth, well, you end up with the likes of this Levite who ought to be serving in the tabernacle. This Levite just sinking deeper and deeper into the mire of sin. Not satisfied with having taken a wife, he finds for himself a concubine in Bethlehem. And normally a man would take a concubine for no other reason than for sexual gratification. Well, she commits adultery and runs back home to her dad. She's actually not much better than he is. After several months, the Levite decides that he wants her back. So he goes back to Bethlehem. And what we see in many ways, really, as this story unfolds, is that she is little more than a piece of property to him. But he goes off to get her. Now, it may be that her father is somewhat worried about how this Levite is actually going to treat her once he takes her back home. And so his actions, as he overwhelms the Levite with hospitality, 
Well, perhaps it's a ploy to try and placate him. We can't be quite sure of his motive. But eventually, after several days and uh, several attempts to try and get up and go, um, eventually the Levite leaves and ends up in Gibeah, where he assumes he'll find a safer and more hospitable place of refuge than Canaanite Jebus. Turns out he probably would have been better off lodging with the pagans than with his fellow Israelites. Who would have thought it? Ever come across someone who claims to be a Christian and you've thought to yourself, hmm, I know, believe, I know unbelievers who live a better life than this. Now, there's something of a challenge for all of us, isn't it? We ought to be living differently. People ought to be able to see uh, that which is better in us because of that which God has done and is doing in us. Well, the Levite and his small party are in the town of Gibeah. The scenes which follow, many of you, I think, will have realised are almost a double take of what happened to Lot in Sodom in Genesis chapter 19. At that point in Genesis, in biblical chronology, we're shocked at such depravity and Sodom has never managed to shake off its reputation all these thousands of years later, many people who have no interest in Christianity have hardly ever read the Bible. Many of them have heard of Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet here are some from amongst God's own chosen people engaged in the very same wickedness. It really is difficult to comprehend how that could possibly be. And yet there we are. In that earlier encounter back in Genesis, Lot had with him two angels. And on, on their account, the men of Sodom were actually struck blind so that they were not able to carry out their threats. Here in Gibeah, no such divine intervention is to be found. And instead, this poor woman, the concubine of the Levite, she is tossed out to the baying mob to be brutally assaulted and abused all through the night. In the morning, she's just in a heap at the front door with her hands on the doorstep. On the other side of that door is safety and refuge. But it's been denied her. And the reaction of the Levite at verse 28 could not be more callous. Come on, let's go. So traumatised by her ordeal is she, she cannot even speak. What on earth has happened in Israel that such wickedness could be found amongst God's people? Just how long-suffering is the God of Israel? Just how gracious is he that he will not forsake them?
Well, as the story continues, uh, just to top it all off, just as we'd assumed that was the worst of it, when he gets home, the Levite kills the concubine, dismembers her, and sends each of the 12 tribes of Israel a piece of her body as if to protest about the things that have happened to him. The Bible often presents us with warnings about the top of the slippery slope of sin. In this chapter, it's as if the camera actually starts to pan down the slope and shows us the kind of stuff that lies at the bottom of the slope. Spiritual decline leads to moral decline. Unrestrained spiritual decline leads to unrestrained moral decline. Israel are now no better and no different to all the pagan nations around them. Take a look around the UK. Take a look around the rest of the Western world. Look at the moral cesspit into which society is plunging because once you've abandoned any fixed reference point for morality and ethics, which is what the Bible gives us in the law of God, once you've cast aside objective truth as decided by a greater power and a greater authority outside of ourselves, God, Everything then becomes open to question and up for grabs. Who gets to decide? Who can claim a monopoly on wisdom from amongst ourselves? Who can claim to know any better than me? You? Who are you that I should take any notice of you? Who cares what your opinion is? I certainly don't. With no king, everyone does what seems right in their own eyes. I become my own judge and jury on the matter. I am my own jurisdiction when truth is abandoned. I become foolishly confident in what seems right to me. And the danger, of course, is that this can spill over into churches and does. I mentioned it last week with regards to worship, because that's what was highlighted for us in chapter 17. Now we see that moral decay follows on from spiritual decay. Spiritual health and the authority of God's word are inextricably linked. God's word starts to be ignored because despite what it says this seems right to me feels right therefore that makes it okay spiritual health declines as the authority of god's word declines and moral decline follows hot on their heels so, marriage, the decline in the authority of God's word 
results in even churches embracing that which falls outside of biblical marriage. Sexuality. A decline in the authority of God's word results in even churches embracing those who endorse sexual identity and sexual activity which falls outside of revealed biblical truth. The roles of men and women. Men and women who are equal before God but are assigned differing functions by God in the home and in the church. Even in churches, the biblical model is being abandoned. And in every case, the proponents of these things will insist, but it seems right to me. In the final chapter of Judges, the nation of Israel, having been rightly revolted by what happened in Gibeah, and what the Levites has done to his concubine, they then decide it's okay to slaughter the men and women and children in Jabesh Gilead so that their 400 unmarried girls can be given to the surviving men of Benjamin and then top up that number by taking by force the girls of Shiloh. And why? Because having seemed right to them to make a foolish and unnecessary oath about not giving their own daughters to Benjamin because we want rid of Benjamin after what's just happened, now they've changed their mind and it seems right to them to devise this wicked scheme to get themselves out of that oath. Spiritual decline will always lead to moral decline and spiritual decline often begins when what seems right to me takes precedent over the word of god the warning of the bible you can actually end up like sodom if you choose to take that path The second lesson for this morning is this. Spiritual issues need spiritual solutions. Human solutions to spiritual issues should always ring the loudest alarm bells in your heart and in your head. So, for example, within the context of the church, whenever you hear anyone ask a question that begins, how can we, or why can't we? You should always be on your guard. Not because those questions should never be asked, but because if you're not careful, they invite human solutions to spiritual issues. Questions like, how can we get more people into church on Sundays? Or, how can we make the services more attractive to unbelievers? Now, genuine and sincere concern for the lost can, can give rise to questions like that. And there's a sincerity that lies behind the asking of the question. But the danger with those kinds of questions is that so often and too easily, 
what happens is that the church looks to the things of the world for the answer. And so it will turn to things like uh, the type of music it's going to use, uh, the style of presentation that will take place within the whole worship service. But what it's actually doing is coming up with human solutions to what is a spiritual issue. Let me give you an example. Let's turn to the words of the Apostle Paul. Think about the, the opening two chapters of 1 Corinthians. You can go away and read the whole thing, but let me just highlight a few things that Paul says there. Verse 12 of chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, Paul says this, Now I say this, each of you says, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Now, the reason that Paul is highlighting this as an issue is because that is to look for a human solution. They're looking to a man. But it's a spiritual issue. Verses 17 and 18. For Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words. Because that will be a human solution lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect because a spiritual issue needs a spiritual solution which is the cross of Christ preached. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing because it so obviously isn't a human solution. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God because it's God's spiritual solution to our spiritual problem. Verses 20 and 21, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Where is the great intellectual public orator? Well, that's to look for a human solution. Has not God made foolish? The wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Because a spiritual issue requires a spiritual solution, not a human one. And Paul summarizes all these points like this. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, 
but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. That your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Always remember this. Spiritual issues require spiritual solutions. Biblical solutions, not human ones of our own invention. The worst enemy Israel ever faced was itself. As it did that which seemed right in its own eyes. Daniel Block in his commentary says this. No other book in the Old Testament offers the modern church as telling a mirror as this book of Judges. It is a wake-up call for a church moribund in its own selfish pursuits. Instead of heeding the call of truly godly leaders and letting Jesus Christ be Lord of the church, everywhere congregations and their leaders do what is right in their own eyes. And all of this, all of the book of Judges goes to prove one thing. We need a king to rule over us. We need a king to rule over us. We don't just need a king. We don't just need a figurehead. We need someone to reign and rule over us. If we would, fall, if we would avoid falling into the snare into which Israel fell, we need a king and we must place ourselves under his dominion and lordship. The problem is, we remember that all the time in Judges, the house of the Lord was there in Shiloh. But the people had long abandoned any thought or desire to be there or go there. And that is a problem actually that we all have. We so readily turn away from the king, even though we know he's there. We so easily deny that we want him or need him even though he's there. So we need a king who will come to us without us calling for him. Because so often, if we're left to ourselves, we won't call for him. We read in Romans 3, there is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. But we read in 2 Timothy 2, if we are faithless, which we are, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. That's the kind of king we need. I need a king who will act according to his own nature and grace, not because I deserve it, because I never will. I need a king who'll come looking for me, even though I'm not looking for him. I need a king and you need a king who will come and choose us for himself, 
because unless he first chooses us, we would never choose him. You did not choose me, said Jesus in John 15. I chose you and appointed you. We need a king who, of his own initiative, will come and rescue and deliver us because we are completely hopeless and helpless. So we read in Ephesians 2, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. That's the kind of king and saviour that I need. Titus 3, when the kindness and the love of God our saviour toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Saviour. That's the kind of Saviour King I need. In Judges chapter 20, verse 13, they speak there of putting to death and removing the evil from Israel. That's the, the Israelites speaking about the people of Benjamin. Putting to death and removing the evil from Israel. We need a saviour king who will do that for us in our hearts because we cannot do it for ourselves. We need the evil putting to death within us. And what do we read in Romans 6? Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Christ, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. What else do we read as we, as we examine the New Testament epistles? I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And so God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, Yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. If I would not be like Israel, if a local church would not be like Israel, we need this saviour king 
who will abide in me and I in him. That I might live in his love and love him who first loved me and went to the cross for me. And that I now may keep his commandments. Why? Because I love him. And because those commandments now are written upon my heart and hidden there that I might not sin against him. And the word of God, the law of God, the, that fixed rule of truth, that objective body of truth which has come from outside of ourselves, from this almighty and powerful God who is our creator. That now, once more, becomes my rule and my guide and is written within my heart. Israel was in need of a mighty and righteous and oh-so-gracious saviour king. And so am I, and so are you. And his name is Jesus. And he is the Christ of the living God. And if you will turn in repentance from your sins, if you will believe and trust on him, you may know him and his salvation and receive him and follow him and love him as Saviour and Lord.